0: Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. Uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 1 verses 26 through 37 would be our main text today, Uh, Luke's Gospel, uh, chapter 1, verse number 26. So uh, last week we really talked about the genealogy of Jesus, and uh, we looked at Matthew 1 and Luke 3, and we worked our way through those names because I wanted you to understand that Jesus not only is the Messiah due to his title, but he's due to be the Messiah because of his birth, right, because of his lineage. And so not only from a biological standpoint, from Mary's genetics, right, but also from a legal standpoint, which is Joseph's genetics. And so we talked about in great detail how he has to have both, because God said so many thousands of years ago, right, that my king, the Messiah, would come from the house of David. God promised that to David himself, that somebody from your lineage will sit on the throne forever, right? And so that was a promise, and if God makes a promise, he delivers, He delivers every single time. So this morning, our sermon title would be Dynasty of Grace. Okay, Dynasty of Grace, Luke 1, verse number 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Once again, Luke's connecting that there. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But behold, but she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. An angel said to her, "Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus." Verse number 32, "He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Verse 34 And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, the relative, your relative, Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And so we read these words every Christmas season, right? Every Advent season, I can promise you, we go through this text. And uh, this is my 10th Christmas being at CBC. And every year, you know, I'm kind of thinking, what are we going to draw from this that hadn't been said before? But just to think about the gravity of the text, guys, that we can preach this for a thousand years and not exhaust its meaning. We can preach this story over and over again because there's so much here to wrestle with. There's so much here to glean from what God has spoken and to be reminded here of these truths of what exactly happens here. I want you to understand some big, big things before we get going. That for God in the Old Testament with the Israelites, for God in the Old Testament with anybody you can imagine, God was scary. God was extremely scary. Why? Because God was holy. And because of God's holiness, that God had strict guidelines to how man was to approach Him. Because God was holy. And so for the Israelites, they understood something that our modern generation has lost, which they feared the Lord. They feared the Lord to the extreme. Why? Because they had seen what God did when they didn't fear the Lord. I mean, you think about how when Adam and Eve, they were the ones who sinned in the garden in the first place, they were chased out of the garden. I want you to think about that. And not only were they chased out of the garden, but God placed a guard to not let them back in the garden. Because of God's holiness, right? And not only about that, but going further, that God's righteous judgment happens because of the flood, right? That's God's righteous judgment on a sinful people, right? And so looking at that, you see that God reigns with power and might and wrath. But He also reigns with love and mercy and justice because you cannot hyper extend one of God's emotions or one of God's characteristics more important than the other one because they all determine how God is his character right but for the israelites for the jews at this time guess what when they were reading this when when mary got this proclamation she was terrified isn't it amazing that fear is always associated with the christmas story Then when Mary gets a messenger, it says she was afraid. Because the angel says, don't don't be afraid. I'm not here to kill you. I'm not here to get plagues. I'm not here to do anything else. I'm here to tell you that, God, that you found favor. You found grace in the sight of God. And then when the shepherds, guess what? The angels show up in the fields, guess what? They are terrified. They don't know what's going on. Why? Because for the Israelite people in the Old Testament, as well as in the New Testament, and even for the people of the Bible, when they heard God's name, they were terrified. They had a healthy Fear of the lord because guys i want you to tell you something on mount sinai god told don't touch my mountain if you touch my mountain you'll die when they're packing the ark of the covenant guess what one brother starts to slip and fall and another brother sticks out his hand to catch the ark he's dead he falls dead because god says you're not supposed to touch the ark So God has strict guidelines when operating with him. So we are to still to this day, even though we are new covenant, even though we are grace people, even though we are completely under the blood of Christ, we should still have a great fear and reverence for the Lord. We should still have a great fear and still a great reverence for the Lord. That's part of who we are as a people. So you look at this story, and we read through and we know the details that that Mary's found. Of course, she has that question that everybody should have. I'm a virgin. How's this supposed to happen to me? And so sure enough, Gabriel gives her these instructions that this is not going to happen like you think it's going to happen, but the Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you. The power of the Most High is going to be upon you. And sure enough, the child that you're going to have, it's not going to be Joseph's child, but it's going to be the Son of God. It's going to be the Son of the Most High it's going to be the son of god that you bear and his name is going to be jesus his name's going to be jesus and we know this name famously because this is his name right this is the name all, above all every another name right this is the name that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess so we know jesus more near thing but i want you to know that during the time whenever gabriel gives this announcement it was not a name that would strike you as unique. It was not a name that would catch you and you'd be like, oh, that's an odd name. This was a name that was pretty common at this day and age. This was a name that meant further back than we even think it, real, than many people realize, because Jesus means more than you think it does. Because in the text, you know, Jesus means the Son of God to us, but going back further than that, you see point number one here, Jesus is the Greek of Yahshua. And Joshua is the Greek of Joshua, and Joshua is the meaning of the Deliverer. And so whenever we see Jesus, we need to automatically link that name and say, that means, you know, that goes back to other meanings. He's talking about reminding us of Joshua. Why? Because for the people of Israel, when they heard the name Joshua, they knew who that was. They knew what Joshua meant. Joshua was the one who went into the promised land with them. Joshua was their leader of old who conquered the land. Joshua was the deliverer that they'd always, in a sense, wanted and needed. And so whenever Gabriel announces his name, whenever Gabriel says his name shall be called Jesus, his name shall be called Joshua, his name shall be called Joshua, his name shall be linked to all these different things. For Mary, this was a very big moment. Why? Because some things weren't lining up. Because remember, they were awaiting the Messiah, the one who would save them from Rome. Guys, you have to understand context. They were waiting for the one who would save them from Rome. And to make matters even worse, guess what? The name that is given, Jesus, that deliverer sets in their mind yet again that guess what? Jesus is going to deliver us from the Roman authority that holds us captive. You know that, crop, that popular Christmas song, Mary, did you know? She didn't. She didn't. Because you can see it even in the gospel tales, you can see it in the gospel stories that she had missed what was going on. Because look what Gabriel says, the instructions after the name are very important here. His kingdom will never end. His kingdom will never end. That's a big deal. Why? Because that means he, he's never going to, to, his reign's never going to end. And a king's reign ends when he dies, correct? His reign is over. So saying that his reign is never going to end, that's a big deal. Why? Because that proves, that guess what? He's, he's going to live forever, so to speak. And so you look at this, you look at what Jesus even says to Pilate. When, when Jesus is being interrogated by Pilate, Jesus says these words in John 18, 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not deliver, be, be delivered to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. So you see this idea that the kingdom Gabriel's talking about and the kingdom Mary is thinking about and the kingdom Pilate is talking about and the kingdom Jesus is talking about are completely different kingdoms are completely different realms, are completely different agendas to what's fixing to take place in the tiny town of Bethlehem. Because I want you to know that oftentimes the needs you think you have are actually wants, and God's truly aware of the needs you really have. Because you find yourself asking God for wants and wants and wants when really our true the true truth of the gospel is our Heavenly Father doesn't always give you what you want, but He does always give you what you need. He does give you what you need. And that is the truth of the gospel. Because I'll show you this in Matthew chapter 1. Whenever um, we're talking about Joseph's side story, look what happens here. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When, the mother Mar- when His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, once again, they're engaged... Legally binded. before they came together, she was found to be a child from the Holy Spirit, and her husband Joseph, once again, legally, if you were engaged in this culture, you were as good as married. So that's why you see her husband here. Okay, so in order for them to get divorced back in this day, they didn't even have to be married; they had a legal contract of anticipation of marriage. Okay, so that's why they were betrothed. That's what that means. Okay, so look there, and and just Joseph being a just man. And not willing to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Because remember, according to the law, Mary had been found committing adultery because she was pregnant. Joseph, he's not a smart man, but I can tell you this, he knows. that guess what, if you'd be pregnant, she must must have been unfaithful. So he could have had her stoned, he could have had her killed, he could have had her ran out of the village. But instead he says, I'm going to divorce her quietly so nobody knows. But as he considered these things behold an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying Joseph or uh, yeah Joseph son of David do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the holy spirit she will bear a son and you shall give his name give his, him his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins he will save his people from their sins I want you to notice something here. He's not saying he will overthrow the Roman government. He's not saying he will fix world hunger. He's not saying there will be no more wars. He's not saying there will be no more famines. There will be no more natural disasters. No. What is the angel saying here? He will save his people from the real true problem they have. He will save his people from their sins. Look what happens here. And then the angel links it back to a promise. And this all took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife, and he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and they called his name Jesus. So that promise there where you know, the virgin will give birth and they will call his name Emmanuel, to us that doesn't mean much because we read it every Christmas season. It doesn't mean a whole lot. But for the Jew reading this, which is exactly who Matthew writes to, to the Jew reading this in this time period, guess what? They knew where that verse was from. They, as soon as that was read, as soon as that was announced, they knew that was Isaiah. They knew that was the prophet Isaiah, and they didn't have chapters, they didn't have verses, but they knew it's from the scroll of Isaiah those words are uttered. Because once again, you have to understand context, context, context. Isaiah is one of those books where Bible reading plans come to die, amen? If you don't know what I mean by that, every year some of you are like, I'm going to read the Bible this year. You get to Leviticus, wham, <laughs> You know what I mean? Every year, you're, you're dredging through the Bible. Like, I'm going to read the Word of God. Isaiah is one of those books where it's so long, it's so prophetic, and it's so bizarre, some of the things he says, that you're like, you know, I'm just going to skip to Matthew. <laughs> what can I miss if I just skip a couple hundred years and get smack dab in Matthew? But for the Jews, for the people this book was intended to with the first gospel, the book of Matthew, when they were reading these words, they knew exactly the reference. Because that quote comes from Isaiah chapter 7, verse number 14. And that quote comes from a time in Jewish history that they remember very well. It comes from the exile years. It comes from the years, or guess what? them being shipped around, them being deported, them being taken away from the very land that God had given them. Because you need to understand something here. The Bible Bible always shows us this. The promised land was not the true gift. It was the God who made the promise to give them the land that was the gift. And God was saying, if you're not going to keep my conditions of the covenant, you're not going to stay in my land which I have given you. So guess what? God made those commandments, made those decrees, because guess what? He wanted them to stay in the land. But Israel over and over again broke the covenant over and over again. They didn't do what God asked them to do. So guess what? God removed them from the land. God literally drug them out of the land, so to speak. So exile for the Jews was a big deal. Exile for us should be a big deal because we are people... Not only should we talk about physical exile, but we should talk about a spiritual exile. Because you know what I know about all of us in the room? We long for Eden. We miss it. We miss Eden more than you actually think you do. Now what do I mean by Eden? I mean the Garden of Eden, right? We, our soul knows we were made to live for eternity. Like our soul knows it. That's how we hear about death. It wrecks us to our core because we know this isn't right. No matter, how, no matter how many times you go to a funeral home, no matter how many times you look down at that casket and see a loved one there, you know this isn't right. It isn't supposed to be this way because we were exiled from the Garden of Eden. And then you think about Egypt. You think about how God's people were in bondage for 400 years. And then you fast forward several years, and guess what? They are in exile from the Babylonians. And this big theme of exile and being foreigners was very common for the Jews. And I want you to know here today that guys, you might say, what do we have to do with this, Passionick? We are we are not Jews. We are Gentiles. We're here in Kentucky. What in the world, guys, we are exiles. We are spiritual exiles. We are sojourners, right? That we are people that we have a dual citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven, but we are members of the United States of America. But we're just passers through. This is why over and over again the Bible talks about don't make your home there Why? too permanent. Why? Because you're just passing through. You're just passing through. Because we're all exiles here. We're all people who are not where we're supposed to be. And we long to be back in God's presence. We long for it. Let me tell you how much you long for it. I'm going to blow your mind this morning. Some of y'all ain't even ready. Amen. Every Christmas season, we go get this box that has 16 layers of duct tape from the attic. Every year, it's got different duct tape for the seasons. We get this behemoth of a thing out. We set it up. Some of you crazies out there, you've had yours up since July. You put all these branches on this bad boy. You put all these lights around it, and you get all these ornaments out, and you gotta vacuum up all the dust and hope and pray a mouse does not jump out or your wife's gonna go in labor. Yeah. You do all that to get this fake tree that sits in the middle of your house. And it smells like uh, cotton ball. I mean mothballs, amen. Not cotton balls, what in the world? It smells like mothballs and it looks terrible. And some of you are like I am, I'm too cheap to buy a new trees, so we've had the same one for years. And some of you are so bougie, you've got a a kid's tree. You've got a tree when you walk in the door. You've got a tree in this living room and that living room. Talking about Dakota. Uh, We've got all these trees, all decorated pink, white, with fake snow. And then, as soon as it gets dark outside, maybe before you get dark outside, your wife doesn't care about the power bill. She plugs it in. Every morning, she wakes up, plugs it in. And the lights are on. Everything's going on. Some of you may have got Charlie Brown ornaments that sing and everything else. And whether you know it or not, but I would say we are fascinated with those trees because we long for Eden. Because for some reason, we look at that tree, it gives us hope. For some reason, we look at that tree in the middle of our dark living room, surrounded by things we love. You could almost picture, in a sense, that those ornaments look like fruit hanging from a tree. And they glow and they shine and they look very pretty. You see what I'm saying here? And there are some theologians, believe it or not, they believe that the tree of knowledge that was in the middle of the garden actually glowed. There's some theologians that believe that, that the tree in the middle of the garden actually glowed. I don't know if I believe that. It's a little bit far out there for me. But I will say that I firmly believe that every year we put up our tree, it's to remind us that guess what, we're not needing. And we miss it more than we're consciously aware. Why? Because we're in exile. We miss it. Miss it more than you think we do. But I want you to notice here, like I said, I talked about Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, because I want you to know that at this time, Asa is the king in Jerusalem, so to speak. And Isaiah is warning him that, guess what, judgment's coming. Exile's coming. He's reminding him that, guess what, exile's coming, judgment's coming. The Assyrians are coming to dominate us. And so Isaiah gets this prophecy from the Lord in chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, of course, we know from the other texts that Emmanuel means what? God with us. But I want you to know, if you go back and read this prophecy, if you go back and read this story, if you go back and read Isaiah chapter 7 or chapter 8 or chapter 9 or chapter 10, these people didn't want God to come. Because if God showed up, give you an idea. There's some verses around this context where it says God's going to rend the heavens. You know what rend the heavens means? God's going to rip open the sky. And God's going to come down and judgment's coming. But we know reading this 2,000 plus years later, we know reading this in context, guess what? This was not a message of judgment. This was a message of hope. Because in the garden, guess what? They had fellowship with the Lord. In the wilderness, guess what? God showed up in a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day. Y'all remember this? They had the tabernacle, which was the presence of God. Mount Sinai, guess what? God's presence came down the mountain. In the holiest of holies, guess what? That was the place where God's presence dwelt. And we all long to be back in God's presence. We all long to be back with the Lord. And we all long for God to come back to us. If you don't know how the book ends in Revelation, the story doesn't end with us going up to the Lord. It doesn't end there, church. The story ends with God coming back down to the earth and dwelling with us. That's how it ends. Because we long for that. Because I want you to notice here what... The reason why they get cut off is the sin. But you look at Genesis 3, verse 15. This is the, the curse of God issuing out to the snake, to the woman, to the man. And this is what he says uh, in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your heel and you shall bruise. I mean, you, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first prophetic mention. I guess what? The Savior's coming. The Savior's coming who's going to reunite you back in fellowship with God. Let me ask you this, church. Do you think when Adam and Eve had Seth that they thought maybe this was the Savior that was promised? I guarantee they did. I guarantee you when they looked at Seth, they were thinking, he's going to get us back in fellowship with God, but he didn't. You can imagine whenever Moses came in to Egypt to come get them out of bondage, every Israelite was whispering, this is the Messiah. This is the one who's come to save us. And guess what? Moses died. And then they had Joshua, and guess what? Joshua died. And then they had David, David died. And then they had all the other prophets, and everyone else, and they all died except for this king who was born. Guess what? He would die, but he would live forever. Why? Because he would resurrect himself. Think about the gravity of that. That this was the Savior who would come. And you might say, how, how, how is Jesus able to be Perfect. How was Jesus able to be the Savior that we needed? It's because he didn't have a sinful nature. If you did not know this, Jesus didn't have a sinful nature. So what do I mean by this is because he didn't have an earthly father, he did not have a sinful nature. Because his father was God. So his nature, by nature, do you see what I'm doing here? Was perfect and sinless. Why? Because who his daddy was. So because of who his daddy was and because the Holy Spirit was the one who led to him being born because of that connection, guess what? He bore the image of man thanks to Mary, right? He bore the image of man thinking to be known as the true God-man. He was 100% human and he was 100% God only in such a way that it still baffles us to think about. But because of that, he was able to perfectly live by the law and perfectly die in our place so that we, me and you, could be not be reunited with God. Why? Because the debt had been paid, church. So you are to praise God whenever you read the Christmas story. You are to praise God whenever you read this narrative to think about how God has all the bases covered. Why? Because I do want you to know that if he had a father that was a man, he would have had simple nature. If he had simple nature, he wouldn't have been able to be perfect. If he wasn't able to be perfect, he wouldn't have been the perfect sacrifice. If he's not the perfect sacrifice, we have no perfect way of being reconnected with God. If we've got no perfect way of being reconnected with God, we are doomed to hell without no hope. We are doomed. But because He is our Emmanuel, but because of who Jesus is and what He did, and because He is exactly who He said He was, and because He is biologically our Savior and legally our Savior, and because He is truly the Messiah, the Christ, because of that, He can deliver us out of exile. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appears. We sing it every single year, but I want you to understand the gravity of this. The Savior we all want is the Savior that takes care of every problem we have. The Savior we all want is the Savior who shows up and guess what? Gas in your car. Wa-pow! The Savior we want is boom, this, boom, that. But the Savior we need is a Savior who can reunite us with God like we once were in the past. That's the Savior we needed. That's why whenever Gabriel tells Mary, he will have a kingdom that will never end. was kind of like, what? That's why whenever the angel tells Joseph in the dream, and he will save his people from their sins. Because I want you to track with me, church. Track with me for a little bit here. Every problem you have is due to two things. Every problem you have is due to two things. The sin of yourself and the sin of others. Every problem you have is due to the sins of yourself and the sins of others. You know, Joey was back in the booth this morning. He said, he said uh, Nick, I've got to ask you something. Something's been on my brain. Been thinking about it, been wondering about it. He said, and I, I, I just want to ask you. He said, you know, driving through all this devastation, seeing all these trees broken, all these homes and everything else, he said, I, I just have to ask you, you know, did, where was God at? You know, did, did God maybe cause this? That's a fair question. It's a very fair question. He was like, I know he didn't, but I, I just want to know what you would say. And Chris Otter's leaning back in his chair just looking at me. Just well, He was kind of wondering what I'd say too. And the same, same question I've been asked several times, where was God? Why, how could God allow such a thing to happen? And I'll tell you this today church every time we see such a thing as we saw came through our community on Friday night it reminds you that sin has consequences and I want you to hear me plainly here I'm not talking about the sins of those people nobody could ever say such a thing Well, that's judgment, you could never say that because you don't know But I will tell you this, the entire world which we inhabit, the entire world which we call home, is broken due to our sin. It's all broken. It's all jacked up. Because if you follow the Genesis narrative, the very sin that we committed went down even into the ground. The Bible talks about how when we fail, all of creation fails. This is why when Paul uses those words in Romans, he talks about the whole earth groans for God to come back. The whole earth groans for God to make it right. You get this analogy in the Psalms, whenever David is writing some Psalms, he talks about he looks forward to the day when the trees will clap. To give you an idea that all of nature itself is broken. You see glimpses of this even in the Gospels. Whenever Jesus rides in, we're going to talk about this next week, whenever Jesus rides into Jerusalem, you can get this imagery, you can get this powerful scene, whatever the Pharisees like, make them shut up. Make these people be quiet. They're too loud. And Jesus tells them, if they be quiet, the very rocks will shout. Will even shout out to me. Because you get this idea, guys, that the whole cosmos everything you see is broken because of sin. Everything you see is broken because of the sin. It's all broken. And the only hope we have for it to ever be different, the only hope we have that for things to ever be made right, the only hope we have is this Jesus. Because the Jews were under Roman occupancy because they had sinned. They were. God had told them time and time again, if you keep doing this, judgment's coming. Whenever the Jews were in Egypt, it was used to build them up. But over and over again, God reminds them, because you have wandered far from me. You have done wicked things. Because once again, there are two reasons why bad things happen to you or bad things happen around us. It's either because of the sin of yourself or the sin of others. Those are the two things. That's just reality. We live in a broken world where things should not happen. Things should not happen. As I close today, I want you to look here, pay attention to this, our last little big quote. The big news about the gospel is God is with us, God is for us, and God's not against us. God, that should make you celebrate today. God is for us, God is with us, God is for us, and God is not against you. So you think, well, God's some angry man on a throne with lightning bolts, and he's looking for me to step out of line. That is not the God of the New Testament. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible wants what's best for you. So if God says not to do something, it's because he loves you. Like a good parent, before you touch that stove, he smacks your hand. Why? Because he wants what's best for you. God wants what's best for you. And whether you realize it or not, you'll get what you need. You'll get what you need. When I was a kid, I remember my mom would bring home Toys R Us catalogs. Big old thick things, about this thick. Sometimes you'd get some of them that were big, thick. And my mom would lay them up before us boys, and they would crack me up every year. But she would say, y'all go through that and circle some things you want. So we'd go through it, circle some things we want have high expectations of what we're going to get. And every Christmas morning, I was disappointed. <laughs> every Christmas morning, I was disappointed. Why? Because the things I opened up were not the things in the catalog. And there were times where we'd open it up, and it'd be like, socks. Gee, thanks. Thanks. And we'd get some toy, but like my mom always has been, she's so funny, she, she would not get the toy, she'd get a knockoff of the toy. And it'd break two weeks later, right? But we didn't care. We had such a good time with what we did have. We got some things we wanted. I'm not saying that in the downgrade. But it was so funny to have our expectations, and then have our reality. And it's sad to say, but with the Christmas story, Israel expected a king, but they got a baby. Think about the gravity of that. Israel expected a conqueror, but they got a carpenter. Israel expected a royal royalty, but they got a poor commoner. Israel expected him to have a stallion. Instead, their king rode in on a donkey. Israel expected a crown, but instead their king died on a cross if you pay much attention to the gospel narratives, you pay much attention to what God does out all of Scripture, what you expect God to do is never what God actually intends to do. He's always turning the world upside down. But if you really think about this, it's going to confuse some of you. Some of you have already lost you. I lost you and Joseph. Amen. God's not really turning the world upside down. In all reality, though, God's turning the world right side up. You see this with Jesus more than any other figure. Why? Because he's really, he is truly God, truly man. I'll prove it to you. The lepers come to Jesus. That's brokenness of sin, right? Any disease, I firmly believe, is brokenness of sin. Not because of them, but the sins of all of us, correct? The lepers come to Jesus, Jesus makes them clean. The lame come to Jesus. People who are paralyzed come to Jesus, they walk away leaping. You see the brokenness of sin coming in contact with the precious, holy Son of God. And the Son of God changes them. Can you see Him putting things the back way they're supposed to be? Did you notice uh, what the, uh, in the book of Acts what the disciples are accused of? They said this about the disciples. They have turned the world upside down. That's what they said about the first church. They have turned the world upside down. Can you imagine if we became such a disturbance in our community that we turned the world upside down? Man, those Calvary people, you can't make them mad for nothing. Those Calvary people, they give more than they take. Those Calvary people are the first to show up and the last to leave church. I don't know about you, but when you say the word Christian, what people expect is not what the Bible says we are. I would love to flip their expectations, amen? I would love to do that with you. And it's only because God has changed us. And it's only because God's Spirit works through us. It's only because Jesus did not come to rule with wrath, anger, destruction, and all those things you pictured a king would do. He came to establish a dynasty of grace. A dynasty of grace where in his kingdom you don't get what you should have got. You don't get what you should have got because what you should have got was hell. You get what God gives you out of goodness of him not because of goodness of you. God gives you grace. His grace is sufficient for you and how can I say that? today? Because I know his grace is sufficient for me. The dirtier the sinner, you know what I know? The better the Savior. So no matter how jacked up you are, no matter how much you might say, you know, that's good for somebody. It ain't good enough for me. It's good enough for you. Because the thing you need to understand, God doesn't save you based on how good you are. He saves you based on how good He is. That's why God saves you. That's why Christ came. It's to bring you back into a relationship with the Father. How could Jesus bring us back in relationship with the Father? Because He's always in relationship with the Father. He's always in relationship with the Father. So He could bring us in because we had been the ones who had ran far away.